Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I wanted to just make a couple comments here because things are going at a brisk pace again here at Shelton Land as I've now gotten over my flu uh, totally and I'm back into rip-roaring production. Um, had some, have some really good things lining up in terms of the podcast. We did a great podcast with Steve Koenig, uh this last week. I posted that yesterday. He's the author of Fair Game, and he's a uh, ABC journalist from Australia. Really great interview, and I really am very happy with the results of that. So if you haven't seen that, check it out. And also, um, you know, I have another channel, my movie review, The Critical Picture channel. And I wanted to uh, just put a little plug out for that because you're going to be seeing some uh, movie reviews rolling out uh, for those of you who are interested in that sort of thing uh, for all the Oscar movies. Uh, I thought I got, you know, I thought I'd uh, just roll all those things out before the Oscars happen. So that's just a fun little bit that I'm doing in addition to my regular work on my Critical Thinker at Large channel, which is the one you guys I think are more used to seeing. So, that all being said, let's go ahead and answer some questions now. Swift Master Quickness. Surely there are people in Scientology who have experienced real trauma in their lives, sexual or physical abuse, loss of a loved one, etc. From what I have gathered so far, Scientologists are taught to bottle up emotions from the reactive mind. So how are these auditing sessions handled if a person is rightly becoming emotional from reliving these painful experiences? That's a good question um, because it is, it is a chance for me to clarify some of what happens in Scientology's uh, auditing sessions um, because what, a lot of what gets talked about with Scientology in terms of what's done with that e-meter and what is done in auditing is confessionals or sec checks, the security checks that Scientology does where they're pulling all of your crimes and moral transgressions and things like that. And while that can act as auditing, there's a whole range of things. There's a whole another set of processes or commands or actions that are done in Scientology that are supposed to be therapeutic and are not designed to just pull your crimes or your transgressions, but are meant to help relieve stress, spiritual trauma, emotional upset, and things like that. I don't know one Scientologist who doesn't, who hasn't had some kind of emotional trauma or upset or problem in their, in their past or in their life. Generally speaking, that's why they're in Scientology, is to get that dealt with and get it gone out of their head, not erased where they don't remember it anymore, but trying to relieve the, the, strom, the trauma and the stress of it. So to, to that end, Scientology auditing is designed to basically take a person and run them back through or re-experience the incident in one fashion or another to, because uh, I, and I say that because there's different ways of going about doing this, which I don't need to get into all the details of it. Dianetics literally has a person go back and relive the experience over and over again. There are other things that Scientology does where they will address different aspects or different parts of uh, the painful or emotional incident and try to strip off, you know, what they call charge, emotional charge, you know, upset, you know, the, 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 the emotional investment a person has in the incident. 
And, uh, and if that doesn't fly, they'll look for earlier incidents of a similar nature. Let's say you, you know, they're handling some, some loss of your, you know, of a, of a parent. And maybe there was an earlier loss of a loved one, a brother, sister, aunt, uncle, grandmother, dog, you know, something like that, that, that it, per Scientology theory, the trauma is, you know, that, that is contained in the later incident is uh, anchored by the earlier incident and earlier and earlier. And this is how, this is one way that Scientologists get into past lives and stuff is recalling these incidents going back further and further and further. Um, during an auditing session, a preclear, the person who's receiving the counseling, is free to express themselves in any way they want. There are no breaks put on a, a preclear in an auditing session. And one of the reasons that Scientology auditors are trained with those drills, those communication drills where they sit and stare at somebody for hours, and where they get taunted and teased and what's called bull baiting, this is training, this is a training action now for the auditors, one of the reasons they do those things in Scientology is to prepare the auditor to deal with anything that a preclear might say or do to them in the course of an auditing session. Because one of the guiding golden rules of, of auditing is that the auditor is there to get to help the preclear through whatever it is that comes up. And it is an inexcusable offense for an auditor to abandon a preclear, stop doing the auditing, um, or in any way what Hubbard called rabbiting, like taken off from the session when it's going. I mean, it's, it's expected that once you start a session, you are going to go through to the end until that person has re-experienced whatever they need to experience and have come through it on the other side, feeling better about the whole thing. And that is real, and that happens, and people do experience emotional and um, you know, mental or spiritual, however, whatever word you want to use, they experience some relief in going through some of these incidents and confronting some of the things that have happened to them in the past. It's undeniable. I can't sit here and say that doesn't happen, because it does. And it happened to me. It's happened to other people. This is something that does bring about some benefit from Scientology counseling. Now, as I've said before, this is no endorsement of Scientology because anything that happens in a Scientology auditing session can happen in, a, in a, any therapeutic counseling session with a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a counselor or something like that. It doesn't have to be a Scientology setting in order for you to experience that kind of relief. And so I highly recommend that people stay away from Scientology because there are other means and methods of, of you know, reliving and experiencing and relieving oneself of the burden of, of loss and trauma that don't involve all the authoritarian crap that Scientology brings into the mix, right? And there are also other kinds of uh, auditing procedures that are done that I think are damaging, which I've talked about before. Objective processing, for example, definitely puts you in a trance state. Definitely not a good thing to be doing to people. Uh, and so can some of this trauma-relieving stuff. It's not like this stuff is, is fully workable on every single person it's ever done on. There are plenty of failures and plenty of instances where a person uh, re re you know, goes into a euphoric state, which is temporary. 
they get they get some temporary relief from whatever it is that they have experienced but then it kind of you know comes back in on them again later so this is not you know again there's no endorsement of scientology but i am saying that there are people who have done this and have felt benefited by it and that's about the, as fair a statement as i can make about it so outside of auditing in day-to-day life and especially for staff members and Sea Org members, especially for them, you're expected to keep that emotional trauma and upset and things like that that you might have or be concerned or worried or upset about things. Outside of an auditing session, you're expected to keep that stuff bottled up. That is where I think that idea comes from. Uh, Scientologists are, are professionals at denial, and at bottling up their emotions and at pretending that they are not feeling how they're actually feeling. Um, you know, put a smile on your face. Everything's great all the time. You know, the Scientology is the most wonderful thing in the world and it's just making me so happy all the time. You know, that kind of thing goes on in Scientology and it's, and it's not good uh, that, that people are put into that, you know, uh, frame of mind where they feel that they need to be acting that way. But that is a different thing from what happens in the counseling sessions. So I hope that uh, makes that a little clearer, the distinction between those two things. Artist for Echo, I have heard you mention the terms start-stop-change in one of your Q&A videos. I have heard a similar term called start-stop-continue, both in business and most noticeable in some of my charity work. This is a way of promoting feedback within groups. People suggest things to start doing, stop doing, and continue to do. Given Scientology's history of hiding their methods inside business and motivational training, was this start-stop-continue method created by Scientology or Hubbard, or was it something adopted by Scientology from elsewhere? I think we're talking about two entirely different things that happen to use the same words, start-stop-continue. Now, in Scientology, what you have is something called a cycle of action. Uh, any action or you know the motion in the in the physical universe can be expressed through start, change, stop, okay, or start, continue, stop, and that is called a cycle of action. You know, if I get up from this chair, walk into the kitchen, you know, and and then walk back or or come back or something, I've started, I've continued that motion. And then I've come back and I stopped the motion and I'm done moving, right? That would be a little cycle of action during the entire course of my life. My life could be a cycle of action. I'm born, which is a start. I live and grow, which is continue. And then I die and I stop, right? That's start, change, stop. So Hubbard, um, you know, used that term, start, change, stop, to, for lots of things. Uh, but basically it comes down to that, that cycle of action. He claimed that he got that idea or that, I, that concept comes from old, old Vedic hymns from 10,000 years ago uh, where this was noted, this idea of first there is you know, nothing and then there's something and it continues and changes and then it decays gradually and then it, then it dies and stops. That's, that cycle uh, was observed many, 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 many years ago, right, by the, by the Veda and put into these old ancient hymns. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. I just know that's what Hubbard said. So that's where he claimed to get it from. 
And he thought that this made a lot of good sense using start, change, stop, both in auditing procedures um, where a person is made to concentrate on starting things, changing things, stopping things, you know, like on purpose, right, in order to put them more in a position of being at cause over their life or over matter, energy, space, and time, right, and things like this. So there's basically ways you practice, you know, starting, changing, and stopping things, and this is a kind of auditing that's done in Scientology. As far as what you're talking about with seminars and motivational training and stuff like that, I don't think that that's related to what I'm talking about with, uh, with what goes on in Scientology. I think it's um, really, I think it's just a coincidence. Jonathan Mark, what happens if Scientology is regging a member of the Scientology public and the object of the regging, i.e. the mark, calmly responds to each request with a no? The mark doesn't argue or engage or give reasons why not other than that she doesn't want to. Does the red cycle ever end? Uh, well, yeah, of course the red cycle will come to an end. I mean, if, if somebody's just sitting there saying no, 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 and they refuse to otherwise engage or say anything else, um, basically the salesperson, the Scientology registrar, is um, going to try to cajole them or talk to them or get them talking or get them, you know, find out what all this no, no, no is all about because it's a little weird, actually. Um for somebody to just sit in front of a salesperson and just do that. Now, if they're in a situation where the salesperson has cornered them, and I, I'm not really sure, you know, the context of this question leaves a lot to be, you know, for interpretation here. So, so I guess let's say, let's give a couple scenarios here, right? Let's say that you have a reg, and the reg is just sitting in their office most of the time, or they come out during course room breaks or auditing breaks, and they try to, you know, get into what they call reg cycles, where they'll, you know, they'll sit and, and try to sell, sell somebody on something. Um, and gauge, depending on how much time they have with the person, will depend on how much effort they're going to put into the sales uh, pitch. And, um, you know, and then, they'll, of course, they'll try to get the person to come back later or something like that. Now, if you have a person who, uh, you know, so generally speaking, in a situation like that, if the person is just sitting there saying no, 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 and the reg knows that they've only got a couple minutes with the person, that's, you know, okay, fine, I'll talk to you later sort of thing, right? They'll, they'll try to leave by at least leaving the door open a little bit to talk to the guy. But they are going to wonder what's up with all the no, 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 right? And they're going to want to, they're going to want to, you know, find out what, what's, what that's about. Is there an upset? Is there something they did or somebody else did that has created, you know, upset with this person? Because um, generally speaking, the Scientology salespeople, the regs, don't want people unhappy with Scientology. They're not going to pay a lot of money if they're unhappy. So they're going to try to do whatever they need to to you know, investigate and find out why is this person not satisfied or not happy with what's going on. Uh, you know, the regs' job is to believe in the service. Scientology doesn't get sold by people who know it's a con or no, it's a fraud. They truly believe in what they're doing. And they really believe in the auditing. They really believe in the classes and the courses. And that they and they believe that these things are doing people good. So uh, they have to, otherwise they wouldn't be good salespeople because you gotta be pretty hardcore to be a Scientology reg. So if somebody's, you know, 
what they would call that is if they were BIs, if they were bad indicators, BIs, right? I Meaning, in other words, the person's looking glum, the person they're trying to sell looks glum, looks sad, looks upset, looks angry. The reg is going to go, hey, something's really wrong here. The reg might alert an ethics officer, a course supervisor, the auditor, whoever it is that's been dealing with this person or needs to deal with this person is going to hear about it from the reg. The reg is going to go, what the hell with Joe, right? Um, if they're in a situation where maybe it's after course hours or they've gone to the person's house or something like that, and maybe the person is cornered and in a situation where he doesn't want to be sold, which of course happens all the time in Scientology, um, generally the public are kind of polite about it and they try not to, you know, piss off the staff members or piss off the regs or something. But... If they're in a situation where they are strapped for cash, don't have the money, don't want to be sold, are feeling like they're getting the high pressure sales and they don't want to hear about it right now, then they might get a little bit, hey, no, 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 right? I said no, I meant no. And they might just get up and walk out. I've seen that happen, right? You can't, regs generally don't, you know, lock people in the room and stuff like that. That happens during the sec checking, <laughs> during the auditing. Right. Once you're in an auditing room, you're in there until the auditor lets you out. Right. But with a with a reg, generally speaking, they're going to try to keep things on an upbeat, fun. You know, even if it's forced, even if it's stupidly plastic and 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 insanely stupidly forced, they're still going to try to be that way. They're going to try to be you know, woohoo, isn't all this so exciting and great, you know, sort of thing. And then they'll do their reg sales tactics on the person. If I, I was a reg for a while in Scientology, I did quite a bit of regging. And if I had a person sit down in front of me who was just sitting there saying, no, 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 I might just say flat up, just straight up, uh, dude, what is up? What is going on? Why, you know, why all the no, 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 no? Why aren't you talking to me? You know, anything I could do to get this person talking because the, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that the salesman has to work with is the communication of the person he's trying to sell. So if the person's not communicating, they're not being sold, which means the reg isn't doing his job. So he's got to get this person talking somehow. And knowing the person uh, or knowing what service he's been doing or knowing something about his history, he, the reg could ask the guy all kinds of questions, including, are you unhappy with Scientology right now? Is there something that's gone, that happened that, we, that pissed you off, that you're upset about? Tell me about it. They'll try to make themselves a safe person for the person to talk to. So regs, you know, here's the, here's the funny thing in Scientology, and you might have a hard time believing this, but it's, but it's true. The regs were some of the best friends that a lot of the public had because the reg was somebody who was kind of, you know, they, they're not chaplains, they're not ministers, but they kind of open themselves up to listen to anything that the person wants to tell them. And it's kind of like, it's kind of like the Al Pacino character in Glengarry Glen Ross, if you've seen that movie, and I hope you have, because if you haven't, it's a really good movie. Al Pacino's is first shown in that movie having taken a, a, a mark out to dinner and or a bar, and they had been talking for hours 
hours and hours and Al Pacino is telling this guy stories and getting him all involved in his life and getting all involved in the, in the, 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 the Mark's life and then does the sale, right? And the sale is done so smoothly and so like just, it just eases right into it, right? Because they've established a rapport, they've established a relationship and this person actually believes that the salesperson is their friend. And the regs in Scientology think of themselves as the best friend of those people that they're selling to. They care about them. They want them to be doing well. They often know their family, right? They're, they know their friends, their Scientology friends and things like that. So it's quite an interesting dynamic that they, they can establish with a person. This doesn't happen 100% of the time. Some people get regged and they don't really want to establish a relationship with the salesperson. They don't want to get all talky-talky with them. And they just go about their business and they just, you know, write their checks or give them the credit cards and that's that. But if the reg has anything to say about it and the reg is any good, they're going to get involved in the person's life, right? And they're going to, and they're going to really want this person to feel like the reg cares about them personally and will do anything for the person in order to see that they make it all the way up the bridge to total freedom, right? And that's part of what, that's part of the salesmanship of being a Scientology reg. It is a nuanced, uh, carefully crafted, and very worked job. It is not a passive job. And, um, and I think you'll find this true for sales at any level in any group really, um, you know, you have some people who show up to work and they're just working and they don't really care about, you know, the people that they're selling to and then, but they're not the best salespeople. They're not the ones who are making all the money and they're not the ones who are really taking home the big bonuses. The, 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 the salespeople who, um, okay, one last thing on this and then I'll be done. L. Ron Hubbard advised uh, Reg's in policy to use what's called hard sell. And hard sell in Scientology is not, it is high pressure sales tactics. Don't get me wrong, right? None of what I'm saying is, is meant to, again, be an endorsement of Scientology. I'm just trying, to, just trying to explain how it really works on the ground. Hard sell, according to L. Ron Hubbard, is caring about the individual and caring enough about the individual to get them through the stops and barriers that the person is going to present to buying the services that are going to rehabilitate and save them as a spiritual being. That's hard sell as told to Scientology regs. So regs adopt that definition to their activities as regs and they put out a lot of caring and a lot of uh, you know comfort and aid and that sort of thing to the people they're selling. So I hope that kind of, you know, I know I talked a lot there, but I hope that that kind of explains the whole attitude of regs in Scientology and why they're so persistent, why they are so um, high pressure sales is because they really believe in their product and, um, and why they won't easily take no for an answer. So there you go. Jenny Lark, my question is about the technical creative behind the scenes of your channel. I recently started a video series project of my own, so I've become super curious about the processes of the creators that I follow. What camera software do you use? What is your philosophy behind your output? How to be engaging, etc. 
Also, clearly you're super creative, and I'm wondering if you have philosophy of how you perceive your creativity, or if you've ever struggled with it. I recently showed my camera setup and stuff like that on a recent Q&A, so I'm not going to do that again. I use the Adobe suite of software, which is Adobe Premiere Pro and, and Photoshop and you know, um, uh, Illustrator and After Effects and things like that. So that's the software that I use. And as far as the creativity and stuff, this is an interesting question. That's why, that's why I wanted to answer this. Um, because I haven't really thought about it a lot. I have been a writer all my life. Uh, from the time that I was in grade school, I was writing stories. And I always imagined that my life was going to go in the direction of creation, of, cre of being a creative as far as writing novels and stories and things like that. I grew up reading Stephen King and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. I mean, I read actually so many books when I was young. I was just a sponge. I've read thousands of books in my life. And, um, and then taken ideas and things and, and started working on how to write myself. And of course, you know, when you are a writer or a creative, the only way that you really get any good at it or get any better at it is to do it and do it and do it and do it. And I didn't have a chance for many, many years to do that as a fiction writer because once I joined the C organization, once I joined Scientology uh, out of high school and then I joined the C organization, I didn't have much time for anything like creative writing or story writing. I did a little tiny bit when I was in, but really hardly anything because of the, the time constraints of my schedule. I did put a lot, a lot of create, though, into other things that I did when I was in the Sea Org. So I still was creating stuff. I learned how to do computer programming, which, believe me, is very creative, actually, uh, trying to figure out problems and solve them and things like that. And then I also did a lot of writing uh, in terms of not just orders and stuff that I wrote, but I did copywriting, I did recruit pieces, I did promotional pieces, and I, and I kept up some skills that way and learned some skills that way. That's where I learned how to use Adobe software like Photoshop and Illustrator, and it went from there. Um, so when I came out of the Sea Org and I started writing again, looking at writing again, um, that was, you know, something I was going to start pursuing. And then, you know, 2013 happened and, and that was the, the year of, of hell. Uh, and I then started writing, I started finding myself expressing my thoughts and ideas in nonfiction pieces. I was writing about Scientology. I was writing about myself. And I was just using this, the, the English skills and the creative skills that I have to try to express myself in a logical, rational way. Uh, try to not necessarily be non-emotional, but trying to not be overly emotional and trying to change the, 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 the premise for me, the, the, the priority for me was, was changing hearts and minds through rational discourse. And so that was the approach that I took. And it turned out to be a pretty, pretty good fit for me in terms of how I would go about writing, you know, nonfiction work and stuff like that. Um, and I had so much to say, so many things to talk about. I mean, I have, with, with Scientology alone, I have, you know, 27 years of, of practical, hard experience with it. So to impart all of that experience or the lessons and, and activities of that much of time to you guys has been a lot of work, right? But it's been uh, a very interesting work in trying to figure out uh, you know, what am I going to talk about this time? Uh, you know, what am I going to make a video about or a series of videos about? 
how am I going to lay this out? Uh, you know, what's the logical progression of the thoughts and, and ideas here and how should this all go? And, um, and then, you know, and then sitting down and doing it. There have been, uh, and then putting myself on a schedule, and this is, you know, this is not easy to do. But when you're creative and, and this is your passion, then it is not work as much as you might think it is. Um, but putting myself on a schedule where it was two videos a week, then I started doing the podcast, right? So now I have three videos a week that I'm putting out. There have been days where I have had some writer's block. And I have generally, as a creative, had a rule for myself that if I'm experiencing, if I'm not inspired, if I'm not, you know, thinking of something that I'm really into as far as writing, I don't try to push something out anyway. Because I, I, it's hard. It's really, really hard to do that. So instead, I just wait for it to come. And generally speaking, it doesn't take that long. However, there have been a couple times where, you know, it's been a Wednesday and I got to get a, th- a video up on Thursday. And I wake up Wednesday morning and I'm like, I don't know what to talk about, you know. And I've called people and I've, you know, I, I'm, I'm stuck right now. I don't know what to talk about. I don't know what to make a video about. And oddly enough, even when I've sort of had to, because of the time issue, push something out, you know, wrote something. And sometimes there have been a couple times where I thought, this is no good. People are going to hate this, right? This is just going to be awful. And, it, and they were some of the best videos. They were just some of the best received videos ever, right? It was really funny. And then, of course, there's other times where I've, I've been very inspired, have put something together, uh, been totally excited about it, you know, and this is especially true for some of my critical thinking videos, my non-Scientology directly related videos. I am really proud of some of that work, and I, and I put a lot of work into it, and I put it out, and hardly anybody watches it, and I'm like, you know, but I know that, you know, I'm still proud of it. It still sits there for me as a piece of work that I can be proud of, and that I no will is timeless you know it will be there forever on youtube it will be written on my blog and uh people 10 years from now can still get something out of it the same even if they didn't get something out of it the first few days that i put it up and you want you know you want a lot of people to look at your work and sometimes they don't you know and that's that's a little frustrating sometimes but it's it's being you know it's what it is so um, so that's, I don't know, maybe that gives a little bit of, uh, you know, how it is for me as a creative and as a writer. I do think of myself as a writer before anything else. All the video work and stuff I do, I do because it's the best way to get to a larger audience of people in a shorter amount of time. That's what sparked me doing YouTube in the first place. Um, you know, I write everything I do pretty much except these Q&A videos because I like the spontaneity of just answering off the top of my head. But, um, but as far as all the other video content that you see on my channel, it's all pre-written. And, uh, and I have a great time doing it and uh, researching and writing and all that. So maybe all this to- sums up some good advice for you. I hope it does. And, uh, or otherwise might be interesting for you to hear about my process. So there you go. Ah, indeed. Have you seen the YouTube anti-Scientology documentary, The Bridge? It's very dark, but comes off very realistic. How accurate is this movie? 
I got asked this question quite a while ago, and I finally sat and watched the entire movie, The Bridge, which was made by a guy named Britt Hanover uh, many years ago, uh, I think in the, in the early 2000s, uh, with some other ex-Scientologists. And, okay, um, to be brutally honest about this, uh, it is not a good movie. There are aspects and parts of it that are dead-on accurate. And there are other parts of it, unfortunately the majority of it, which are not accurate and which or are only accurate in certain circumstances or under certain conditions. And it paints a picture of the Scientology world that is spot on in so in, in certain ways, but just totally off the mark in others. No Scientologist is going to watch that movie and be and, and think at all or be convinced at all that what they're involved in is something they should not be involved in. Because right from the get-go, the movie shows inaccuracies in how Scientology is delivered. And any Scientologist is going to know that. And, and, and I mean like pretty, pretty outrageously uh, obvious stuff. Like they're showing a, sh- a scene with an auditor and a preclear. And the auditor is messing around with the e-meter in ways that no Scientology auditor would ever mess around with the meter. He's moving knobs and dials and stuff that don't get moved in the middle of an auditing session. And he's asking questions that were frankly ridiculous. So it's kind of like a very poor representation of what Scientology auditing looks like, what certain Scientology procedures look like. And, it, and if you don't know before you watch this entire movie, which is about an hour long, if you don't know Scientology policies and Scientology procedures, most of this movie is going to make absolutely no sense to you. And that's a real mistake because the, the, this movie is, as far as I know, is meant for to educate you know, the non-Scientology public and perhaps is meant to try to talk to Scientologists and show them that there's things that are going on in the organization that, that maybe aren't so great. Um, I mean, they show a, a father who has been declared and is disconnected from his daughter who is working at FLAG, and he tries to call them. There's no context. There's no setup. There's no background. So he kind of comes off looking like a jerk. And the, at the FLAG end, they pick up the phone, and she looks up his name, and it says SP, and, you know, and it has these, these things about him. But they never tell you what an SP is. The, the, the term suppressive person doesn't ever get voiced during the entire movie. So you have no idea why this father has been disconnected from his daughter. She commits, she, during, the, during the course of the movie, she ends up killing herself because she's disconnected from her father, or at least that's the implication. She's miserable. It doesn't make sense, right? Because when Scientologists disconnect from family members at the behest of the church, they generally tell themselves a whole bunch of lies as to why they're doing the disconnection and are generally not, you know, maybe deep, deep down they're, they're not so happy about it, but they'll never express that to other Scientologists, right? And they'll put on a happy face and they'll think very, very happy thoughts about the whole thing. None of that is shown. Everybody in this movie is absolutely miserable. And if you think that's how Scientologists act and look and, and how, what they tell themselves, dead wrong, right? Absolutely not. 
If anything, it's the opposite, where Scientologists are in sort of a, a pretend euphoria all the time. But these Scientologists in this movie all looked like they were either bored out of their minds or much, much worse. Okay, um, almost every technical procedure that was shown as far as the auditing, there were two instances where an auditing action was shown, where a clay demonstration was shown, and where a sec check was shown. Every one of those was absolutely flubbed. I mean, totally wrong. And any Scientologist who watches this movie is going to see that, and they're going to go, well, that's not right. And the second that you show a Scientologist something about Scientology that they know isn't right, boom, you lost them. They are completely turned off to whatever it is you're trying to say or do because they know you don't know what you're talking about because they know what Scientology is. So if you're going to go dogma on them and you're going to start talking you know, about their practices and, and what's wrong with their practices, you better know what you're talking about, right? Which is one reason why non-Scientologists, family members and friends should not engage with Scientologists about the technology of Scientology or the specific methodologies and stuff of Scientology. It, 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 you're, you're not in a position of authority or an education to talk to them about it, right? So this movie got it really wrong on those points, and I was just quite surprised at how wrong they were. What it got right, and I mean nailed, just nailed, was the Office of Special Affairs. Okay, this father is, you know, is disconnected from the daughter. The daughter commits suicide. Now, you don't know why he's disconnected. You don't know what's going on with that. But the OSA guy calls the executive director, the head of the Memphis church where, where this father is located, and tells him, you need to call the dad and tell him, you know, we, hey, we're all heartbroken about your daughter dying, but you know what? She didn't want you at the funeral, so you don't get to go to the funeral. Now, that's a phone call I would never want to make, but that is a phone call that has been made by Scientology. And they show the OSA guy calling the executive director, the executive director calling the father, and it was perfect. I mean, that was a picture-perfect, just nailed it as far as the script of what the executive director would say to that father. And, of course, right, you know, piss the father off even more. Um, they also got protesters right because they showed a couple protesters, Scientology protesters. Now this was pre, if I remember, if I'm if I'm right about this, this was pre-anonymous. So the protesters that are shown and the way that this executive director goes out and just pounds on them uh, verbally, just gets into this whole verbal fight, starts swearing at them and stuff. Nailed it, right? Again, absolutely nailed uh, how Scientology was dealing with protesters. Once Anonymous happened, it, it changed, and the way that they were instructed to deal with protesters was, uh, was to ignore them, right? Very loudly ignore them. You do not engage. You do not talk to them. You don't look at them. Nothing. And only very select people within the church are allowed to have anything to do with protesters. Uh, they're off the special affairs people. So, so that they got that right in the movie. Um, and the, but the best thing about the bridge... And where they, where they really did it right was where they used, they incorporated Scientology-created videos, promotional videos, staff videos, briefing videos, um, 
you know, the, 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 uh, the Dianetics introductory film. Like they incorporated those properties into the storyline of the film. The film opens with a briefing from Ron Miscavige Jr., Ronnie Miscavige, right, who did a briefing to the staff about Scientology dissemination. Uh, then goes, you know, then during the course of the film, they show these other properties. And that is when this, this bridge film is the most effective at showing you how nutty Scientology actually can be. It, it, it lets Scientology speak for itself. And those were the most effective parts. The rest of the parts were depressing, black and white, downtrodden, very, very strange uh, portrayal of, of Scientologists. Because, um, and again, some parts dead on, but mostly kind of dark and depressing. And this, this woman, Diane, who's the main character of the film, is portrayed as a staff member who's getting this really crappy auditing apparently goes clear during the course of the movie and then is being you know told that she needs to go to flag and go on with the ot levels and stuff well she looks like a like like massively depressed through this entire movie and i'll tell you right now if there's one thing scientologists don't get to get away with it's walking around looking depressed they're, they're gonna if, they, if you walk into a scientology organization as a scientologist and you look and act depressed all the time, they're going to sit you down and go, what the hell is going on, right? Because that's, that's the exact opposite of how a Scientologist is supposed to look and act, right? That's a horrible example of Scientology. So even if you're faking it, they'd rather have that than have you walking around looking like this Diane character in the movie, right? And she was a staff member. So, you know, it just kind of got things really, really backwards that way. And finally, the last thing I want to comment on with the movie is uh, it probably has one of the worst soundtracks I have. I mean, incredibly distracting uh, to the point of being painful at the end and uh, not at all contributing to, uh, you know, the story that's trying to be told. I understand everything that they were trying to show in the film, and I understand why they were trying to show everything that... That was, that was portrayed in the film. They just did a really bad job of it. And uh, there could have been a lot more explanatory material. There could have been a lot more dialogue that made a lot more sense. Uh, that may, would have been a much more realistic uh, reflection of how Scientologists act with each other and how Scientologists act with the rest of the world. And I wish that they had gotten those points right. Um, it looked like a movie that was made by somebody who thought they knew what Scientology was. And I know that there were ex-Scientologists who do know what they're talking about connected with that film, which is, again, why it was a little surprising that it was so off. So there's all my thoughts on The Bridge, and I hope that helps. Whoa. That sound means it's time for Flash Answers. Bobby Hunsacker. Do you think the reputation of the cult of Scientology is damaged beyond repair, or do you ever see a scenario where the Church of Scientology may begin to attract new members? No, they are definitely not going to handle their PR problem. Scientology is toxic, and it will remain toxic from here on out, because the information that is out there that I put out, that other people put out, it is permanently out there. And if you Google Scientology, 
so much stuff comes up. I mean, look at Leah's show. Look at going clear. I mean, you can't really go to any medium and not find the truth about Scientology. And it's permanent. So, you know, short of them literally short-circuiting the internet, uh, Scientology has no way to escape its toxic PR value, negative value, and uh, and they're going to be, they're, they're not going to overcome that because they just don't know how, and it's not in their DNA to be able to change the problems that that organization has so that they are no longer toxic. Barbara Miller, I know this is a silly question, but I wonder what the Church of Scientology would do if you brought at least 20 or so homeless people into one of the churches. If those homeless people just sat down and said, I want to join, we need guidance and some help, etc. Yeah, that'd be a real short visit. They would be kicking you right out the door right quick uh, because Scientology is not a charity. It does not offer free services to homeless people and they would have absolutely no interest whatsoever in helping any of those homeless people out. Nelson Anito, how often did you hear the term for us lowly non-Scientologists, WOG, during a normal work week? Was it used as a slur all the time or did it become a description of outsiders? What did you think of WOGs when and if you used the term? WOG is a derogatory term in Scientology for anyone who's not a Scientologist. I didn't particularly care for it, but of course I certainly used it probably hundreds of times because it's used all the time to talk about people who are not in Scientology. They, WOGs, they're just a bunch of WOGs. Oh, that's WOG think. Oh yeah, WOGs, uh, those guys, you know, oh, stupid WOGs. So yeah, this term gets used all the time. Near the end of my Scientology career, I started finding, feeling distasteful about it personally. And I don't say this to let myself off the hook because I, believe me, I used the term plenty of times over the years. But near the end, um, I started using the term muggles instead because I just liked Harry Potter and I thought, you know, muggles was a, was a less demeaning word that meant the people who don't have magic. And we in Scientology have the magic. So that was the term I started using. And other Scientologists picked right up on it. I mean, they got what I was saying. And they all laughed at it, too. Um, but it is always meant to be a derogatory term by Hubbard. Okay, everybody, we have reached the end of this week's episode. I hope you found these answers enlightening, interesting, and educational. Thank you very much for coming around. Consider supporting me and my channel through my Patreon or through PayPal or however you feel appropriate on that. It really helps, and I really, really appreciate it. So thanks a lot, and I will see you guys next time.